are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up with our study of step number 26. And so we're pretty far along in the book at this point. And uh, this step is on discernment, uh, which followed on humility, if you remember. And, uh, and so this is pretty consistent with the writings of the fathers that uh, with humility, one grows in a kind of purity of heart that then allows one to see the things of God, that which is pleasing to him, uh, the truth about oneself, as well as the, the truths of the kingdom. And, uh, and in this step on discernment, he's going to take us through a whole host of things that, a discern that discernment allows, uh, allows for us uh, in the spiritual life uh, to uh, recognize, for example, the vices and how they manifest themselves, how we might remedy them. Uh, discernment also allows us to... Uh, to see clearly, for example, our intentions uh, behind our actions, the mixing of vice and virtue, uh, which is very important too within the spiritual life, that sometimes uh, we will be engaging in something that is virtuous, but perhaps uh, underlying this is ego uh, or some uh, perhaps even ill intention. Uh, why prayers at times go unanswered? When and why demons leave us? What purpose uh, there is behind us? When, behind that, when we don't seem to be afflicted or undergoing any particular trial, uh, the differences between natural and supernatural virtue, and then also discernment helps us to see with greater clarity where we are in the spiritual life, uh, what spiritual gains have been made, and where we are still struggling. And this is only part of what we'll be looking at here it's a very long step so we'll be at it for quite a while if uh you remember we are in paragraph 17 on 192 and he begins here to give us a little list of things uh especially for beginners uh that begin to emerge with discernment and uh, either virtues themselves or things that uh, help us to progress within the spiritual life. And we've gone through much of the list already, uh, but we left off with meekness. And uh, we talked a little bit about it not being uh, a kind of weakness or allowing oneself to be uh, sort of a doormat for others, but it's really a strength. Uh, it is a, a true virtue. And it's often when we are insulted or treated poorly that the insensitive faculty will begin to emerge, uh, as it often does when we see temptations uh, to sin arise within us. And so a kind of anger that leads to us to act, we become incensed at the presence of something. But meekness, especially when somebody treats us with a kind of injustice, allows our response to be tempered and shaped by love, by divine love, what has been revealed to us in Christ, uh, so that we simply do not react uh, only in accord with the emotion that is produced, 
but we act in accord with what has been revealed to us in Christ, that we seek to act in a Christ-like fashion. Uh, simple and unquestioning faith that the further one progresses, uh, not only in terms of discernment, but uh, in the spiritual life as a whole, the more simple things become for us. We have a tendency to uh, make uh, the, the faith complicated and the spiritual life very complex. And I think as one progresses, uh, things become more and more simple. We see ourselves simply as standing before God in need of his grace and mercy uh, as the re recipients of great love. And so our response becomes very simple, that of gratitude, um, freedom from worldly cares. And so the more attached we become to the things of God, the more detached we, we become from the things of the world. And so lose the typical anxiety that we often find that goes along uh, with these things and worldly cares. Hateless hatred of parents. I'm sorry, mom, this is a hard one. <laughs> but uh, that one places God and the will of God above all, even those who are closest to us and whom we love the most. And, um, and so, uh, we hear Christ in the gospel say, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That uh, the love of God stands above all, all things for us. Uh, detachment. So again, as our attachment to the love of God, our love of virtue, our love of the things that lead to virtue. As all these things grow, what we see is a falling off, not only of our attachment to worldly goods, but our attachment to certain sins that perhaps have held us in their grip for decades, that they no longer have the same pull on the human heart because we don't see them as necessary for our happiness. And so uh, more than our muscling our way through them, we, they seem to uh, fall by the wayside because our focus is directed more and more toward the beloved. It is he who that we de desire and, and his love. Innocent simplicity. Uh, we, we have a tendency to scrutinize uh, and dissect uh, the intentions of, of others, the meaning of their words. And, uh, and so we lose a kind of innocence that will take people at their word and what they say to us and uh, how they're acting to us. We, and I think we become, can become jaded as we get older. Uh, and if we've been betrayed or treated poorly, then sometimes we lose that ability that uh, to uh, again to receive what people give us either in word or, or deed with a kind of trust. Voluntary abasement. And so not only receiving in a spirit of, of faith, uh, the humiliations that we often undergo throughout the course of life and certainly in living out the gospel but volunte voluntarily embracing them. Uh, often there is a kind of resistance that we struggle with throughout the course of our lives as we strive to hold on to our dignity, our identity in the eyes of others. And, uh, and so uh, we, do, we might do it involuntarily, uh, embrace it in, uh, on a certain level, uh, because we know it's good or because we see Christ do it, but very few of us perhaps voluntarily uh, humble ourselves or take the humble path, the lowly path. Uh, there's a little quote I came across today from Father Lev Gillett. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right. Has anybody heard of him before? Great Eastern Orthodox spiritual writer. And... Uh, he said something here that I found uh, quite extraordinary, and and I think he's he's 
He's right, absolutely, in thinking about it and how we can be drawn off path. And I don't, I typically don't like to quote from other writings while we're focusing on uh, one of the fathers, but uh, this, I found this so striking. It's just the more I examine myself, the more I see that a life devoted to constructing and organizing, a life which produces positive results and which succeeds is not my vocation. Even though out of obedience, I could work in this direction and even obtain certain results. What attracts me is a vocation of loss, a life which would give itself freely without any apparent positive result, for the result would be known to God alone, and brief to lose myself in order to find myself. And this struck me, because I think we are, are, are so often purpose-driven. In fact, isn't there a book out there called The Purpose-Driven Life? <laughs> and... Uh, but with that often goes along quite a bit of ego. Uh, and, and if we receive approval for it too, uh, we can, and where we're allowed to run with it, we'll run with it. You know, if somebody uh, acknowledges our, our abilities or talents and we want to take this particular path and ask for it and they, they'll agree to it, then we can pick up the ball and run. But sometimes we don't ask ourselves, is this what God desires? Um, uh, is it simply going to be something that complicates my life? Even if there, it is good and good that could be accomplished out of it, as he says. And that one can do it out of obedience. But discernment you know, allows us to look a little bit deeper. Is this something that God is really calling us to do or a path that he's calling us to walk? Um, you know, people like Therese are good, are wonderful in writing about this. You know, I long for a love that is not felt. You know, that, uh, you know, being driven, not even for what is produced in terms of consolation, but to love God purely for because he is good and because he is loving out of gratitude. And there was a point where she wanted to move to some other Carmel that was more hidden where she wouldn't be known, where she wouldn't have sisters, biological sisters living with her and protecting her and looking after her, but where she could live a completely unknown and obscure life. Not that she was not unknown and obscure in her own time. You know, she lived in this Carmel and Lisieux. I mean, nobody knew her until after her death and her writings become available. Uh, but uh, it's interesting how saints come to see things. You know, what they are looking for, first and foremost, is God and intimacy with God and the desire to please him. And it's not often going to be in producing what the world would think is valuable. And we've talked about this before. You know, there's so much that's been done in the church and so much building that takes place and constructing of things that takes time, energy, money, that we have to step back and ask, is there a good amount of that throughout time that has been driven more by the desire for glory or power or uh, to, you know, have a certain level of comfort and uh, that isn't really reflective of the gospel call. Bigger is not always better. And so often we can be driven by that. And I've often thought one of the things I was interested in most of all when I first studied, started studying psychoanalysis was uh, sublimation, <laughs> which seems fitting for, you know, a, a priest that would have to sublimate a lot of energy uh, in different directions, you know, towards prayer and uh, the service of others. But uh, sublimation is, you know, uh, a defense mechanism, a very positive one, unconscious, like the most of the, the defenses for us, uh, but where we redirect 
certain energies into a more positive direction. And so building things and building things of beauty or things that are for God could be very powerful within the mind of a, a priest, for example, uh, that this is uh, of God and for God. And so that might not necessarily be so. It might be driven by something very powerful within us. And again, even something that is good. And this is where discernment allows us to go, <clears throat> again, very deep in terms of looking at our intentions. Why are we doing something? Is it really from God? Is it going to draw us closer to God? And... You know, simply because it looks successful or good or pleasing to many people doesn't necessarily mean that it is from God. Okay, there's a comment that came up. Let's see. A couple comments. Good. Uh, one was the quote on meekness. Uh, Sam writes, need for fasting, particularly during many periods of discernment, has helped many saints and Christians not only tame their passions, but clear their minds from any attachments and thus take the path God wants of them. Could it be due to the humble stripping of self from earthly things and abandon to God's grace, wisdom, and mercy? Yes. And uh, I would say yes. You know, that certain things are only overcome and certain things are only seen through much prayer and fasting. The scriptures tell us and Christ tells us. And there is a humbling of mind and body that takes place through both. And I think the stilling of the mind and the heart allows us to listen again for that word that God speaks to us and desires us to hear that so often the, the, the voices that fill our mind uh, are, are really our own voices, different parts of ourselves uh, pulling us in one direction or another, as, as well as the, the voices of the world and others around us. So fasting and prayer should, again, be those practices that we love. And I think one could add to this vigils and a whole host of other things as well that allow us to listen on a, a very deep level. Number 18, a good schedule and resolution for the advanced and evidence of their progress is absence of vainglory, freedom from anger, good hope, stillness, discernment, firm remembrance of the judgment, compassion, hospitality, Moderation in reproof, dispassionate prayer, lack of avarice. <laughs> That's a lot already in that paragraph. And uh, I don't want it to be too laborious for us to go through it. But some of these are certainly a, a, of extraordinary importance. You know, absence of vainglory, focus on the self, freedom from anger, good hope that our ability to endure, even when we can't see uh, the path ahead of us, our ability to trust in the promises of Christ, even when we seem to be wrapped in chaos uh, or where the future seems uncertain to us, for those who are advanced to remain in that good hope uh, is a kind of evidence of the action of God's grace within them stillness and so remaining uh with within that stillness where we're able to listen to god not only in the times that we set aside uh for prayer but again we come to love it so that we protect it as something precious we maintain it through uh the jesus prayer throughout the course of the day uh so we protect ourselves from allowing the mind and the heart to be distracted or filled with the noise of the world. Um, firm re remembrance of the judgment. So to re remember our mortality, to remember death, 
uh, the account that we give for our life before God. Compassion and hospitality, moderation and reproof. So, you know, that we look at others and with love and share in their burden. And moderation and reproof is certainly an important one, that we uh, take no joy in reproving others or correcting them, but we are seeking to love them as if as we would want to be loved ourselves, to be guided along a path where we've fallen into darkness. Dispassionate prayer. Um, we haven't talked a lot about this, but this is, you know, again, in the East, we find this emphasis more and more on the non-discursive meditation where stillness, silence uh, is what is to be cultivated. Uh, St. Isaac, who we've been talking about reading, says, you know, one of the greatest things that we can do is to stand in silence before God. And we've you know, talked over and over again about silence allowing us to hear a word that is that God speaks to us that is equal to himself, that we still our own faculties, including intellect and reason you know, our own judgment in order that we might listen to God or allow him to guide us by his light uh, rather than uh, seeking to make it fit in with our understanding of things. And so our prayer becomes simply moved by our desire for God, knowing that he alone is what completes us and fills that sense of lack. And so we aren't seeking so much the things of this world or uh, to be given this or that or protected from this or that, but to love and give ourselves in love. Uh, Michael writes, didn't Augustine say you pray the most when you say the least and pray the least when you say the most? It can be true that, again, our prayers can be filled with a glut of words and uh you know, often words, ideas, thoughts can help draw us along. But I think East and West, we see that eventually words fail. And one moves more and more into the prayer of the quiet and allows oneself to be drawn along in silence or the darkness of faith. Uh, we've talked a little bit about John of the Cross uh, speaking about this in the sense of... Uh, the, the silencing of the faculties that have even served us well in the spiritual life, certain forms of meditation that as beautiful as they might be, and no matter how they've enriched our piety, our love, our devotion for God, can only take us so far because they are not God, no matter how beautiful they are, and no matter how well they've served us, these ideas, these thoughts, these images are not God as he is in himself. And so to allow ourselves to remain in silence or in the darkness of faith is to allow God to reveal himself to us as he wills, as he chooses, and what he desires us to, to hear. Uh, lack of avarice. So, you know, one... Again, let's go one's grip uh, upon the things of this world, including uh, our own will. Number 19, and here is a standard rule and law for those in the flesh who are piously aiming at perfection in spirit and body. An unfettered heart, perfect love, a well of humility, a detached mind, an indwelling of Christ, inviolability of the light of prayer, an abundance of divine illumination, a longing for death, a hatred for life. And so, uh, you know, certainly many here already in the list that perhaps jump out at everyone. Uh, but this striving for perfection, these last two I mentioned, 
might be the hardest to understand, a longing for death and a hatred for life that, you know, both speak to a heart, again, that is filled with desire and desire that can only be satisfied in God, a heart that has come to see and understand that with a perfect clarity. So like Paul, you know, a longing to leave this world, a willingness to remain uh, if God wills it and if it's in accord with his obedience, but a desire to leave and to be with him completely where there is no uh, uh, separation, but only the fullness of the experience that we only taste here uh, through the grace that's given. Flight from the body. So, you know, it is, we become driven more and more by the spirit, that which is the higher part of us and guided and directed. So uh, flight from the body in the sense that we, you know, lose our hyper attentiveness to our particular state, our hunger for food, our hunger, you know, to satisfy all of our appetites, you know, uh, fleeing pain at every cost, you know, uh, even our advertising sort of betrays that, you know, take this, you know, Excedrin and you'll never have a headache again, you know, <laughs> kind of thing, you know, that we uh, can't bear, you know, the slightest kind of discomfort. And I think as one progresses in the spiritual life, you know, you hear these saints who find themselves so wrapped in prayer that almost with a sadness, they emerge out of it because they feel the warmth of the sun, the rising sun come upon them. They had been so wrapped in that communion with God. And so the restrictions and the demands of the body seem to dissipate for them, you know, even the demands of sleep, the demands of food, you know, that not only are these things ordered toward God and to, towards the pursuit of virtue, but by supernatural grace, uh, one uh, can be freed from uh, or elevated above those demands on a certain level. An intercessor for the world, you know, we have this tendency to categorize people, friend or foe, good or bad, sinner, saint. And uh, the one for, who progresses in perfection, all those categorizations break down. And the only thing that a Christian is allowed to do, and in the end capable of doing, is love. To look upon another with love and uh, you know it's easy to say that um, but it's probably much harder to imagine it uh, because the world seems so full of those that we categorize in one of those ways you know potential threat perhaps all, all these things whereas uh, one who's been drawn into the per perfect love of God only has the capacity to look upon others through the eyes of Christ. Uh, a forcer of God. It's, you know, it's the first I've ever heard that before, uh, before, uh, I, or before John Climacus. Uh, but I, I think, and I'm not sure, but I think he's referencing here, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent bear it away that in our pursuit of virtue and the things of God, of the things of the kingdom, that one uh, engages in a kind of holy violence, a willingness to die to self, to sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That we are willing to cut things out of our life, in other words, uh, that others have in order to enter into that fullness uh, of, of love that's offered us in Christ. And so we're, we're willing to remove every impediment, whatever the, the cost 
of that might be in order to, to receive what God uh, alone can give. Let's see here, a couple of comments, or one comment. Rory, let God's grace shine upon my silent faith within my temple of the Holy Spirit revealing your divine providence. A very beautiful prayer. Uh, but it's a good re reminder too, you know, that again, our sense of self-identity changes temples of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we are to see ourselves. Fellow worshiper with the angels. Uh, you'll hear him describe in some coming paragraphs that angels become the models for the monks and monks become models for those within the world. You know, that living uh, one's life completely focused upon the things of God and of the kingdom. And so ceaselessly engaged in prayer and praise of God. So this constancy of prayer makes us fellow worshipers with the angels. An abyss of knowledge and uh, not knowledge of the things of this, of this world, although that might, <clears throat> insights into those things might come by the grace of God. But again, knowledge, uh, experiential knowledge of the things of God, of the kingdom, of virtue, and even of others. We hear of certain saints having this capacity to, to read minds and hearts. Uh, a house of mysteries. An interesting thing, you know, I think the mystery, the beauty of the human person as God has made us becomes revealed uh, more and more as we uh, seek to live the life that uh, God has made possible for us. And uh, we often have a very myopic view of, of ourselves and others, when in reality, uh, the mystery of the human person, uh, you know, it's something that the Holy Spirit searches the depths of us as it searches the depths of God. And now that we've been raised up to participate in that life uh, in and through Christ, that uh, we become a house of mysteries, even in a, a deeper fashion, that we've been made for God. And in and of itself, that is a mystery to penetrate. What, you know, what, why? Why does God look upon us in the way that he does in light of the reality of how we've lived our life or how we engage God? A keeper of secrets. Uh, I don't think this is simply speaking of not telling uh, what other people have told us. <laughs> you know, the keeper of, of secrets, keeper of confidence. Uh, I think it is uh, the keep, keeping that which is expresses an intimacy between self and God, between oneself and God. That as a husband and wife, you know, only share a kind of intimacy with each other that we are not revealing to the world the things that we have experienced of God within, within our hearts. And I think in our day and age, you know, there is this often push to, uh, I can't remember what that's called, when a person gets up and gives testimony, a testimony. And uh, again, I don't want to go too far in talking about this, but there can be a kind of danger about that, not only in terms of the vulnerability that a person speaks, but is it appropriate to, to reveal what God is doing within the heart uh, because not only of the vulnerability of it, but the vulnerability that that creates uh, even in the face of demonic attack. Uh, so it's something precious, a, a love that is... Uh, unique and to be protected and that is held between oneself and God, but also that one does not want to 
open that up to the attack of the evil one by revealing it or cool the desire for God because you're constantly opening up the furnace door. You know, that uh, the fathers often warn against that, you know, that you stoke that fire, but if you're constantly opening the door, you're, you're letting out uh, what is often hard won. And so we don't want to fall into that kind of trap. A savior of men. So, you know, knowing the consolation we hear in the scriptures that we have received leads us then to want to offer that consolation to others, to draw them to Christ in order that they might experience what we have experienced. And so we participate in the redemptive work of Christ, uh, both in giving away without counting the cost uh, all that we've received to others in order that they might experience the joy of it, uh, but also in our willingness to bear our share of the cross, to take up our cross daily and to follow Christ. A God of the demons, you know, one who's living in constant intimacy with the Lord, calling upon the Lord's name uh, makes the demons tremble. That, you know, the name that is given, we just celebrated the feast of the circumcision of the Lord. And, you know, we see here already as a child, uh, you know, he submits himself to the law, the law that comes about because of our sin. He engages in this radical solidarity with us. He bleeds for us, cries for us, even as an infant. Uh, but he's given this name at this point, traditionally, uh, among the Jews, and the name that is given is the name that God has given. It should be named Jesus, Savior. And at that name, uh, you know, every knee shall bow, but the demons themselves uh, tremble. And so one who constantly has the name of the Lord on their lips uh, becomes a God to the demons in, this, in the sense of being able to drive them out of one's own heart and perhaps of others. The Lord of the passions for the same reason, master of the body, governor of nature. And so rather than, you know, nature controlling us, we seek to bring order to it by uh, the, the grace and the virtue that God has given to us. A banishment of sin, a house of dispassion. And again, we don't want to misunderstand this. You know, this idea of being dispassionate is that we are uh, moved by a passionless passion. Our one desire is for Christ. And this drives out the disordered passions that lead us to focus in on ourselves or uh, to take the path of sin. With the Lord's help, an imitator of the Lord. So we are conformed more and more to Christ in action and in mind. And again, those images that we've read in the Epicatinos of those who uh, imitate Christ, but also embody the commandments, who turn the other cheek. Remember the demon being cast out simply by the act of it. And uh, so with the Lord's help, we want to become Christ for others in every way possible. Any thoughts about any of the things in this list? There's a lot there, certainly to go back over and, and to meditate upon, but anything stand out or anyone have any comments or questions before we move on? Okay. Number 20. So the demons, uh, we are going to be told, attack when they see us vulnerable. And one of the ways that we are at times vulnerable is when there's illness, when we are lo laid, low, laid low in body. And perhaps this is a good time of the year to talk about this. Uh, because everybody seems to be getting, you know, sick at these points. But uh, uh, 
how important it is to remain prayerful. And so he writes, we have need of considerable vigilance when the body is sick. The demons seeing us laid low and temporarily incapable of entering into the struggle with them, owing to our infirmity, try to attack us fiercely at such times. The demon of irritation and sometimes of blasphemy hovers around those living in the world in a time of illness. And the demon of gluttony and fornication attacks those living outside of the world if they have an abundance of all necessities. And if they are living in ascetical places, bereft of all consolation, then the tyrant of despondency and ingratitude is constantly sitting with them. Wow, that's what a wonderful paragraph this is and uh, because you rarely hear anybody talk about the theology of the spirituality of illness and again you know we've been so hypersensitive you know we've become so hypersensitive to this especially with the rise of covid you know the when a person gets sniffles you know uh, you know immediately they become out of sorts and uh, or take to their bed or whatever it might be. But what he does here, I think, is is interesting. He points out some of the things that come forward, uh, like irritation, naturally, but even blasphemy, you know, of complaining against God because of, of falling sick, uh, that these will hover around us at times of sickness, looking for these opportunities when that irritability gets the, the better of us. Uh, the demon of gluttony and fornication of those living outside of the world, if they have an abundance of, necessity, of necessities. So, you know, if the house is filled with food and soup and medicine uh, and, all, you know, everything that one could need, then we often will pamper the body, but excessively. And in this fall into a kind of laziness or negligence on a spiritual level. We uh, overly focus on tending to the body and to our health uh, that we lose sight of God. And so then we are drawn into gluttony you know, what is it, feed the cold, starve the fever? I can't remember what it is, but usually when people get a cold, they'll sit around and, you know, you know, eat everything that's in, in sight as long as they're not nauseous. And fornication, again, you know, when the, when we lose vigilance and we become overly focused on the body, you wouldn't think that this would be maybe a trial for someone who's suffering illness, you know, because you feel sick, you feel cruddy, and yet uh, it's often here in illness that fornication, thoughts of fornication will emerge as a way of comforting, self-consolation. And so either the daydreaming or fantasizing or uh, self-abuse will begin to emerge as a reflection of that. And those who are living in the life of asceticism, this is sort of interesting. So they've set aside, you know, all earthly consolation. And so the spiritual danger for them is despondency and in ingratitude. You know, why am I, you know, I'm, they fall into a kind of despair or think, you know, my goodness, why am I? Why am I in this monastery? You know, there's so little heat, it's so drafty, or I'm living in this hut in the woods, you know, and we're, and I have no one to take care of me. And so they, again, fall into dis despair or, you know, ingratitude for the life that God has called them to. All of a sudden, the, the beauty of that life, it, you know, is lost to them. All they see is their suffering and lack of consolation that they find in that life. Nobody's bringing them soup in their little pustinia in the woods, you know. So any thoughts about that? I can't tell you how important this is because I think like vacations, illness can do a similar thing 
to us. Like in, with vacations, often we will think I'm taking a vacation from the spiritual life. And one will set aside one's devotions, prayer life, attentiveness to God. And illness can, can do something similar to us because we're telling ourselves, oh, I feel terrible. And, but we don't we have no trouble watching, you know, movie after movie, you know, and now that people have cell phones and iPads and all that kind of stuff right from your bed and you can binge, you know, this is what they call it. So binge on uh, that which offers this temporary consolation to shift one's mind away from what, how one is feeling. But there is a vulnerability that comes with that, you know, that we're opening our, we're, you know, you remember how Henry Nouwen defines it, entertainment is in the in-between state. We fall into this virtual reality and and so we aren't focused on he who is reality and trying to escape the reality of our illness. And so whereas illness could actually draw us closer to God, we fit, experience our poverty on a very profound level in the same way that fasting humbles the body. So does illness. But if we seek this consolation, you know, in these these ways that you know, simply allow us to push it out of mind, then we open ourselves up to attack. Anthony writes, uh, I think it's important for a weakened person to discern what is the weakness versus what is actually a sin or wrong. The devil wears disguises and blames you for it. You mean blames you for the illness or what more do you have in mind there? Well, no, sometimes like, um, this is a Protestant fellow who wrote the book, but John John Bunyan, uh -huh. he used an example of how uh, the devils will whisper something in your ear uh -huh. and think you are to blame for the violence. Sure, maybe you blame a bit by not being attentive or not praying or whatever, have bad memories, but the vile creature is a nasty beast that doesn't play fair. Right. And he blames you for his wickedness. So you feel like a, a crumb. Right. That's right. Yeah. The evil one, you know, he uh, is relentless, but takes no mercy. And so when a person's sick, he's not going to ease up on the spiritual battle. He's going to, uh, you know, use everything that he can to, to, to draw us into all these things, but also this kind of despondency two okay number 21 i noticed that the wolf of fornication added to the sufferings of the sick and during their actual sufferings produced in them movements of the flesh and emissions and it was astounding to see how the flesh rages and burns with desire amidst violent agonies and I looked again and saw men lying in bed who were then and there comforted by the divine power or by a sense of compunction. And by this comfort, they warded off the pain and reached such a frame of mind in which they never wanted to get rid of their sickness. And again, I turned and saw those suffering severely who by illness were delivered from the passions of their soul as if by some penance, and I glorified him who cleansed clay by clay. So interesting. Uh, again, a really powerful paragraph, because psychologically, you know, it's interesting that Freud thought, you know, when a person does get ill or sick, they lose that sensual desire that because their body is brought low, he thought that the energy, I think that typically drives a person in that direction falls off as well. But the wisdom of the fathers is telling us, no, actually, you know, we, we've seen just the opposite happen. The body's raging in agony, surprisingly can be overcome by these kinds uh, of thoughts and desires, uh, even though you wouldn't expect it. And I think they, they understood very well, again, this idea of self-consolation, 
that memories, you know, imagination can be something that one turns to in the midst of illness. Uh, uh, and it might not be the specific acts, but it still can be a very powerful thing that takes hold of an individual. But what is really powerful about this paragraph is the end of it, where he talks about clay cleansing clay, that there are individuals who suffer some illness. And at first, they might think it's uh, a, a grave misfortune. They're debilitated, all of a sudden not able to do what they once did. And, and if it's a chronic thing, maybe they're not able to you know, do what they did for a long period of time or ever again. And it can feel sort of like a curse. But then they realize over time that it, 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 when it's embraced, that it can create within the mind and heart compunction and a deepening of prayer, a, a clinging to God in such a way that they are healed through the illness that in being brought low, they are brought to God and so know the grace of his healing, of the greater illness, the spiritual illness that afflicts us. And, you know, if we think about it, you know, all the illnesses that we endure in this life, or even aging, and things such as that, that if our understanding was really rooted in the truths here, along with uh, a life that is focused upon God through uh, through prayer, that everything then becomes, you know, this place where God is present to us in the moment. Uh, and all becomes grace, even something such as illness. This It's a hard one, especially when you're, you know, when you're in the throes of illness or the body is rebelling, you know, who will, and you're crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death, you know, when you're you know, so sick. And uh, it's hard to see it at that point, but, if, you know, it can also be something that leads us to a deeper abandonment to God. David? Number 22. A noetic mind is certainly wrapped in noetic perception. Since it is both in us and not in us, let us never cease to seek it. When it makes its appearance, the outward senses of their own accord cease their natural action. Knowing this, one of the wise said, and thou shalt obtain a perception of the divine. You know, the, the use of the word noetic, and I'm, I'm glad it's used in this translation uh, because it put, points us where we, we need to, to, to be, where uh, the fathers are talking about the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, the purified comes to see the things of God. And so the noetic mind, the, the, the mind, as it were, purified, comes to see and perceive the things of God in and through experience. It comes via gift. We strive through grace and the ascetic life to purify the heart, to remove every impediment. But God, God, by his grace, brings us to a certain level of purity where then he will shine his light to reveal to the mind and the heart the things of God, his own life, and draw us into it. And so, and thou shalt obtain the perception of the divine. Uh, this is uh, a passage from St. Neil of Sinai who was one of Chrysostom's disciples. And so, you know, we're getting, you know, certainly, again, this is solid food, step 26, but we're beginning to see, okay, the ends of the ascetic life, you know, the end of fasting is not fasting. And, you know, it's, again, it is this humbling of mind and body 
that works to remove all of these impediments and to respond to the grace of God fully in order that he might act in our life and draw us uh, in his wisdom at that at a moment into this deeper intimacy where we experience God again as he is in himself. A light shines in that darkness, pierces that darkness of faith in which we find ourselves walking that illuminates us and reveals to us what one might not come to experience throughout the course of their entire spiritual life. But one who experiences this is not going to lament that, the brevity of it in this life. It might come and go, but to, to know the love and, and to experience the love of God uh, as he is, is an extraordinary thing. Father Marty writes, uh, a person, a personal testimony, a half dozen years ago, I was too sick to get out of bed for several weeks. The consolations and spiritual awareness at this time were, were, were so profound for me that I thought I was arriving at a level of illumination that I would never leave. A couple of weeks after recovery, however, I found myself struggling with the same sin. I had not advanced as I thought, but I'm grateful for the consolation. Right, great, grateful for the consolation, but it's amazing how it can slip away from us, and it reveals to us, you know, the the goodness of God. That in that illness, in that poverty, we see Him lift us up. Uh, but it also reveals to us how easily we can slip back into that place that is more familiar to us. And maybe in some ways more comfortable to us. Because if you remember, you know, individuals and writers like John of the Cross describe some of this as being sort of uncomfortable because you lose hold on certain things that make you feel comfortable in this world. You know, things that give you perception of reality. And because they're limited. And we've come to experience them throughout the course of our life. But all of a sudden to be drawn into this consolation or to be illumined by God in such a way that we taste even for a moment that which uh, is eternal. Uh, that it can feel like one is losing one's sanity. You know, the edge, you know, that boundary between sanctity and insanity is pretty close. You know, a person uh, can slip into that if they, you know, are, do not have purity of heart. And we see monks doing that. That's why uh, the stress on why their writings typically begin with the passions and the struggle with them and the, the development of the virtues over time before thinking about, look, we're in the last three steps before he's going to start talking about prayer and love and things like that. We spend all this time and, you know, until we get to these last three steps. But that's the reason, because, you know, to think that one can be drawn into that without then falling into or being drawn into grave error. You know, you hear these stories of the desert monks thinking, you know, jumping off of a cliff, thinking that God is going to protect them or that, you know, that they don't have to eat and then, you know, starve themselves to death or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so purity of heart, uh, it's for good reason that John Cassian says, this is the immediate aim of the spiritual life. Keep it as your focus and it will bring you along the path where you need, need to go. Okay. That brings us to 828. And so I'm not going to uh, jump into another one uh, and go through it quickly. So we'll, we'll pause there for this evening and pick up next, next week. So, you know, be very patient with these texts and these writings. Again, it's solid food and, you know, reread it, reread it. And, you know, read this book every year for the rest of your life. And new things will step forward.
So when we close, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.